go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 13 this morning, probably the shortest section of verses that we're going to cover throughout the book of Joshua series. We're only going to be covering three verses today. You'll understand why by the end, I hope. Uh, But last Sunday, Joshua 5 started with uh, the narrative of God commanding his people to reconsecrate themselves uh, through the act of circumcision. And through this, God is showing the distinction of his people. This physical mark would show that they were a people set apart for the purposes of God. And it kind of reveals to us that God desires his people to be distinct from the world around them. This has been clear throughout the history of the world. This is, of course, clear through the narratives that we see in Scripture that God does desire for His people to be distinct. God does desire for His people to live in distinct ways among those who are unbelievers. And it's spread through Scripture enough that we should really pick up the theme on that. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not going to live a life that resembles everyone around you. You are going to stick out uh, for one reason or another because of the commands that God makes clear in His Word. And this is an avenue, of course, through which God displays His holiness through our lives. And He still does this through the church of Jesus Christ. We should find joy and glory in the distinctions that God has called us to. And so when we seek to kind of shed those distinctions, when we seek to synergize with the world around us, when we seek not to have the distinctives that God makes clear in the Word that we are meant to have, we need to understand that we should be weary of doing that because that's rebellion against God. And we are not meant in all things to be like everyone else. We are meant to live lives that are set apart for the purposes of God. But the world will constantly pressure you not to be distinct in the way that God calls you to. The world will constantly pressure you to question the commands of God, to question whether or not God actually desires us to live by the design that's shown in Scripture. But when we rebel and disobey and live against the very design of God, we need to understand that regardless of the purpose, we're going to face judgment under His wrath. So there really are only two choices. You will either pursue holiness in your life or you will fall under the judgment of God in eternity. And in verses 13 through 15, God himself reveals in a way that's unique in the entirety of Scripture. And I want you to understand that when the Bible offers a narrative that's not just unique in the history of the world, that's unique even in Scripture, then that's probably a narrative that you need to pay attention to. That's probably a narrative that you need to study and understand what are the purposes behind it, but also what are the ramifications behind it for my life. And so understand that the way that God is going to reveal himself to Joshua in this passage is not normative. God does not, with all of the heroes of the faith that we have throughout the Bible, God does not reveal himself in this way really to anyone else throughout the rest of Scripture. Moses saw a burning bush. 
Paul was stricken off of his horse. It was spoken to from glory by the voice of Jesus Christ. But this is actually a way in which God manifests himself in a unique way in front of Joshua, right before they enter into Jericho to defeat it, right before they begin their conquest in the promised land. And because of that, it necessitates kind of a deeper view where this narrative is going to stand apart as being really impactful, I hope, in your lives because in it we see the peculiar glory that God demands of his people but we also see the holiness of God on display but also his commitment to his holiness and because of that we should not be surprised when God demands that level of holiness from our own lives and I want to begin reading in verse 13 it says when Joshua was by Jericho he lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And I want you to understand that the question that Joshua asks should reveal to you the sinfulness of mankind. Because he's confronted by the presence of God. And what's the first question that he asks? Not about God, but about himself. And this is a very telling question question for the condition of the human heart. And I would tell you it's even a a very telling question for the condition of your heart if you understand the context that we're talking about. Verse 14, God said, no. This or that, no. That's God's response. Imagine how scared Joshua must have been. He says, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Number one this morning, I want you to understand that God demands distinction because he is distinct. God demands distinction because he is distinct. Now, understand the context that we're in. There's kind of a bookend to this. Is On the other side of this narrative, we have the circumcision of the next generation of Israel that's going to enter into the promised land, that's going to begin the conquest over Canaan. But then on the other side, on Joshua 6, next week we're going to talk about the fall of Jericho. We're going to talk about Israel's first victory as they pursue the conquest that God has called them towards. And then sandwiched in between those two narratives is this distinct, unusual, really extraordinary narrative about Joshua coming into the presence of a being that at first he doesn't really understand and he wants to say, are you for us or are you against us? And then it is revealed through the response of God, no, that's not the way this is going to work. This isn't about God getting on Joshua's side. This is about Joshua getting on God's side. And I'll tell you, if you can apply the reality that this narrative presents for us to your life, it is altering of any worldview, but it is also going to alter the very life that you live. There is no way to view this narrative in the proper context as a follower of Jesus Christ and not have it reorient the entire mission of your life. Because if you miss this, if you don't reorient your life to the application of what this narrative is going to tell us, then quite frankly, you cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ because you won't be able to follow him. You'll be about your own mission rather than God's mission. Nor will you even understand why God has the mission that he has. 
Really, the first thing that it tells us is that there is a purpose behind God's commands, even if it is simply distinction. It's an interesting thing that God required of them at the beginning of Joshua 5. I don't know if if you know this, but most people don't remember their circumcision. And that's by God's grace, all right? uh, You want to talk about trauma? Oh boy, I could only imagine, all right? When God gives you a command that you don't understand, the default mode that humanity is going to have is why. And God doesn't owe you a why. He never does. He doesn't owe you a reason. If God only has a reason of the reason why is because I want you to, that is a sufficient status. That is a sufficient reason because he is God. Children are fascinating because you'll have one child that the room is always immaculate. You never have to tell them to clean it. They just naturally love to live in a a clean room. But then you'll have another child who really, it seems like they have a life goal of turning their room into a homeless shelter. (laughs) You know, you're like, you are one step away from tarps. It's 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 like, what was happening in this room? I don't quite understand what your goal is, what you're accomplishing. I got a hazmat suit that's necessary for some of the things I'm finding, all right? But when you tell that child, clean your room, if the child looks at you and says, why? I don't know what, what, what you do as a parent, but I don't personally have a therapy session every time my child doesn't understand my commands. If you do, in 10 years, you're in trouble. I just want you to know that. If, if you have a therapy session with a four-year-old so that they understand the moves that you're making, when they're 14, it's going to be a miserable existence, all right? Why? Because I said so. That's the greatest phrase I've ever said in my life. Because I've executed the mandate of Steve's worldview in Steve's house for Steve's times. We're living under the purposes of Steve in this house. There's no other reason you need. All right? But I can only imagine that you're an adult male Israelite. You're from the next generation. And somebody, the leader of your tribe, comes to, to your, 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 your abode And he says, hey, God's given us a mandate. Everyone must be circumcised. And we got a couple guys out there with flint knives. Pardon? I've received a word from the Lord that seems to be a bit different. You imagine that there are some questions. I can't imagine that out of the tens of thousands of men at that point, everybody's like, sounds great. Be out in a minute. Just got a strip. Right? I'm sure some people were like, what is God doing? I don't know. Because we have this default mode where we want to put our priorities above God's priorities. And so our questions take precedence over God's commands. And what we don't understand is that when we demand of God a perfectly reasonable explanation, and reason, by the way, is defined by me at that moment, what we're doing is, is we're saying, no, 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 I am God. You must bend the knee to my purpose. If you can't help me understand, then I am not going to obey you. When you do that, you find yourself in rebellion against God. That if the only reason that God had for that command was, I want you to be a distinct people, that is a sufficient reason, and we must submit or we will be found in sin. I'll tell you that the reason for that is that if you can catch a vision as to why Narratives like this exist in Scripture. Why they are vital to you understanding, not just God, but understanding yourself. 
then it will very necessarily change the way that you live and it will change the way that you understand yourself and the world around you. Because God is looking to Joshua in verses 13 through 15, and he is explaining the mandate of earlier in Joshua chapter 5. He's explaining the mandate under the realm of, I am God and you are not. Friends, I will tell you these three brief verses, if you can catch the worldview of this passage, then it will put you in opposition to what almost every person in the world understands life to be about. This text really is a catalyst to understanding God for who He is and His mission for what it is. When we talk about the mission of God, I want you to understand that God's mission does not begin with you. God's mission begins with God. He is the definer. He is the purpose. And that includes submitting to Him. That includes obeying Him. That includes seeking Him. And on and on and on. So, you should expect in your life that there will be times when you do not understand the purpose behind the calling of God for you. You should very much expect there will be times in your life when you do not understand the commands of God for you. Yet, even in light of the fact that you won't understand them all, because of your trust in Him and your comprehension of who He is, it will lead you to obedience every single time, even if you don't understand. Even if the only purpose is to show distinction in this world. Even if the only purpose for that command or that calling that God gives you is to set you apart from unbelievers, to make you distinct, which will necessarily lead you to a place where you will incur ridicule. It will necessarily put you into a place where you are totally set apart in your neighborhood. Where it totally puts you in a place where everyone looks and says, that is the extremist that lives by the commands of an ancient book. If that is the only purpose why God will do that to your life, that is a sufficient purpose and it is one that you must joyfully submit to or you will never understand the calling of God at all in your life. You will only find yourself in opposition to God with the rest of the world. Friends, God always has a purpose. The scripture tells us that, but here's the key. Even if I don't understand it, I can say he has a purpose. I don't understand everything that God calls me to do. I don't understand everything that God commands me to do. I don't understand everything that God brings into my life, and I certainly don't understand that everything God takes out of my life. And so there are times when you will come to me and you will say, why has God done this or why has God not done this? Quite frankly, the only explanation I have is I don't know, but I know he has a purpose and that purpose will bring him glory. Outside of that, I'm as limited as you are. I am finite. He is infinite. I am limited. He is unlimited. Therefore, there's no guarantee that I will understand everything that he lays at my doorstep. But regardless of what it is, he has called me that in light of everything, I must pursue his purpose. I must pursue his glory. I must obey his commands because he is holy, because he is God. Why is God holy? I think holiness is one of the most misunderstood things where God is concerned. It's certainly misunderstood where humanity is concerned. God himself is distinct. Now, there's no God like him. Now, as a follower of Jesus, as someone that believes the scriptures, 
I know, and many of you know, that there is no other God. He's it. He's the only God. But sinful man, since the Garden of Eden, has been manufacturing other gods in all of human history. John Calvin called the human heart a perpetual idol factory. We kill one idol, another one's made. And so unbelievers are always creating other gods. This is Pride Month. You should have known we wouldn't make it one sermon in Pride Month without me bringing it up. You see the world's religion all around you right now. God is distinct among the perverse gods of this world. Understand that the world, with the pressure that it puts on you to bend the knee to perversion, it is revealing to you that there is no neutrality where the existence of God is concerned. There is no true unreligious person. We believe that there is irreligious people in this world. There aren't. Everyone is religious. And the world has just created a new religion out of sexual perversion. And they flaunt it in front of us. We know it's a religion because there's no other explanation as to why multi-billion dollar corporations would be willing to sacrifice billions and billions of dollars was when the world says no, and they say we will keep doing it even if we lose money. That's a religion, folks. Those are the high places. Those are the Asherah poles. That is Baal. That is Moloch. And the only God that an irreligious pagan can make is a God that they've always made. All of them have some connection to sexuality because we're obsessed with perversion. They can't think outside of their own genitals. But that also brings the consideration, why do you think circumcision took place in the way that it did? Because God was looking at all the patriarchy and saying, that belongs to me. And so do all of the offspring to the next generation and on and on and on to which the world says, no, it belongs to us and we will do with it whatever we want. We will even create Frankenstein's monster to create fake ones. I don't know if you know this, but I'm quite a biologist myself. <laughs> Smarter than most. I figured some things out when I was a kid. Most people haven't figured out in adulthood somehow. I can't figure it out. It's demons is what it is. But man plus man does not equal child. Woman plus woman does not equal child. Man plus woman equals child. Amen. And that was clear to God. And God was making it clear to the nation of Israel in this passage. And when the world around you puts pressure on you to throw off the distinctions, we must ask, what are they meaning about God? Here's what is happening in Joshua's life. When he, even if it's subconsciously, and he doesn't immediately understand that this is God, I think Joshua understands that something magnificent is going on because he's only encountering one man with one drawn sword. And the greatest question that he has is, is I'm trying to draft you to my team. Because whoever's team you're on is going to win. And so are you for us or are you for our adversary? And God responds by saying, and that's a loaded no, because if God had said, I'm for you, what God would have been doing is making himself unholy. Because God is for God. And to be anything else would be to be unholy. Because being holy does not mean purity. 
Purity is an aspect of holiness, but it is not a definition of holiness. Being holy does not mean being perfect. Perfection is an aspect of holiness, but it is not holiness. Holiness literally means being set apart for the purposes of God. And so for God to look at Joshua and say, Joshua, I am for you, God would be saying, Joshua, I am set apart for your purposes. God can't say that. It'll make him unholy. To be holy is to be set apart for the purposes of God. And that is what an unbelieving world is constantly going to pressure you away from because the world wants you set apart for the purposes of Satan, not God. In 1 Kings 8, verses 60 and 61, God reveals to Israel that he works so that the world may know that he is God and there isn't another one and that their obedience exists in order to show that distinction so that all of the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to Yahweh our Lord, walking in his statutes, keeping his commandments as to this day. That is what it means to be holy means that you are set apart for God's purposes so that through you, they will see him. Verses 16 and 61 flow from the same mindset of 1 Kings 8, 4. It says, and they brought up the ark of the Lord. Now, we've already talked about the ark of the Lord in this series. The tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. Now, that phrase, holy vessels, the Hebrew there can also be translated utensils. The holy utensils. What are utensils? Forks, knives, tools. And so you may ask yourself, how can a fork be holy? Now in my house, I like fancy things, all right? My wife doesn't. I think she does, she just lives realistically. And my head's in the clouds, all right? And so I only like expensive forks and knives. I can't even explain it. I like some cheap stuff. But when I got a fork in my hand, I don't know if you know what Mikasa is, but oh man, there's no better fork. The weight on that bad boy. Oh yeah, I'm a fat man and I love to eat with the right utensils. I want the holy vessels, all right? My wife likes to go to yard sales and a little bit of rustle do her, all right? She, she, she doesn't mind at all. She's not even sure it's real metal. Might have been plastic at some point, I don't know. They just spray painted a little gold on it, all right? <laughs> Forgot she was in here. Oh, got chilly. But uh, what could make a fork holy? You got to ask that question. The reason that those forks were holy is not because of anything in the way it was made necessarily. It was the purpose for which it was set apart. That if those utensils were used for anything outside of the worship of God in the tabernacle or the temple, then they would become unholy. They would not be good enough to be used for the purpose of God. Because the only thing useful for the purpose of God is something that is completely set apart for his purpose. And you might be asking, why would we be talking about holy utensils? Because that's the only way to understand the calling for which God has for Joshua. God's looking at Joshua and he says, no, I am the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua immediately understands. And what does he do? He falls on his face in worship. God is looking at Joshua and he's saying, I'm not for you, but buddy, you better make sure you're for me. And Joshua in that moment gets a picture of holiness that you desperately need to understand in your life. Because number two this morning, understand God is for himself before he is for you. And that's good news. 
God is for himself before he is for you, and that is good news. I cannot say this enough. God is not primarily about us. God is about God, or he would cease to be God. And this is the greatest stumbling block that so many in our day have with their lives. Yes, I believe that this is a moment that is called a theophany. That's why it's so unique in all of Scripture. This is a visible manifestation of God. More specifically, I believe this to be a Christophany. I believe this to be a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because angels don't accept worship. Demons and Satan will, but angels don't. When John in the book of Revelation kneels before an angel, what does the angel do? He says, don't worship me. You worship him. But this, this worship is fully accepted. Why? Because it's Jesus Christ. The one who spread his arms and died on the cross for you is the one standing there with a sword about to help Israel take Jericho. And when Joshua asks this important question, are you for us or are you for your adversaries? Understand, this is the ultimate question of sinful man that has gone unchanged since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. We want to believe that God is on our side. And you think about it, that's not foolish necessarily. I mean, I don't want him on the other team. I do want him on my side. But here's the problem with human beings is we use that as a way to elevate our priorities above God's. The chief way that I see people do this is when you believe that God understanding you is more important than you understanding God. Whatever your personality type, whatever your love language, whatever your hang-ups, hang-ons, chips on your shoulder, you want God to empathize with you. You want God to get into the muck with you. And if God won't get into the muck with you, then God doesn't love you. Last year, a controversial campaign started, and it was entitled, He Gets Us. Millions upon millions of dollars were spent by a parachurch organization, by denominations, in hopes of putting out an evangelistic message about how Jesus understands us exactly how we are. Statements like, you know, Jesus was a rebel, so if you're a rebel, He gets you. Jesus practiced self-care, and so if you, I don't even know what that means. I'm of the age now where you guys are creating therapies that I don't understand. Jesus practiced self-care, so he gets you. Jesus knew how to have fun, so he gets you. And some of them are outright blasphemous, quite frankly, because he doesn't get sin. He's holy. And some of them are just stupid. But here's the deal. All of them are belittling to the name of God. Because what it is, it's not man understanding his unholiness that leads him to kneel at the cross, to turn from his sin, to accept the grace of God through faith and follow Jesus Christ with his life. It is man saying, God, if you want me in your life, you must stoop to my level. Accept me where I am. Leave me with my struggles. Let me have the life that I'm living because God must empathize with you. God is not going to get into sin with you. The gospel redeems you out of sin and gives you the life of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Humanity's greatest struggle, and I don't just think it's our day, I think it's no matter how you define it, it's the struggle of sin throughout all of the history of the world. 
is that we believe that our primary mission in life is happiness. We believe that our happiness is our ultimate purpose, and we believe that there can't be a God that's not as consumed and absorbed with my happiness as I am. That's a lie from hell. God is not primarily concerned with your happiness. And you might say, God would never call anyone to an unhappy life. Have you read the Bible? (laughs) See the stuff some of these guys went through? Apostle Paul had to be so clear. He says, I have found wherewith whatever state I am in to be content. In other words, I'm not happy about it, but I'm going to glorify God through it. I've seen people abandon marriages for happiness. I've seen people abandon children for happiness. I've seen people wreck not just their family, but other families for happiness. Friends, God's primary goal is to get glory out of your life regardless of what it's taking. In Psalm 23, 1 through 3, we are tempted to think that these texts teach us that we are at the center of God's affection. I mean, in verse 1, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That sounds pretty me-centered, doesn't it? It's like, oh yeah, God wants me to be happy. In verse 2, He then moves forward and he says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. It's like, oh, this is a nice day off, man. This feels really good. And you're like, oh, God's chief concern is for me to feel good. No. Verse three, he makes a statement. Why is he doing this? For his namesake. Yeah, you're going to get the joy of the Lord out of it, but that's not God's mission. God's mission is to show how great He is. It is for His namesake. Psalm 106.8 speaks to God saving Israel from the Egyptians. Why did He do it? For His namesake, so that He might make known His power. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 13 and 14, it shows that God redeemed and even forgave Israel of sin, but I acted for the sake of my name. Those are just a few examples. I could have given you 50, but I know you guys don't want to stay here that long. What's the point? The point is that the priorities of God must come before your own or you will never understand the holiness of God. Some of you are making foolish decisions to make yourself unholy because you don't want to be called an extremist. You don't want to be called a Bible thumper. God is for himself before he is for you. That doesn't mean, though, that God is not for you. That just means that God knows what's better for you than you do. He is so long as you turn from your sin for you because sin is always against him. God always wants you to seek his glory. Friend, understand, you cannot turn to the gospel without turning your life towards the glory of God. It doesn't work the other way. And God was clear to Joshua that the only way Israel would experience the benefits of God's glory was if they lived their lives for God's glory. His priorities are above my priorities. That's the order it's supposed to happen. This is not different than the gospel, by the way. God did not have a lobotomy between Malachi and Matthew. 
This has always been the priority of God. God redeems us through the work of Jesus Christ so that we can be turned to his priorities. Look at Romans 3. In verse 25 and 26, it says, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation simply means from God's wrath to God's favor. And the way to get there is through Jesus Christ. To be received by faith. This was to show what? Your worth? Your value to God? How precious you are? No. This was to show his righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If God was chiefly for anything or anyone else above himself, then that would become God. You want to be the most precious thing in God's sight? That means you want God to worship you. You want your priorities to matter above God's priorities? That means you want God to submit to you. You refuse to obey His commands when you don't understand what they're about? That means you want God to obey you. And that means you want to be God. The only way any of this works, the only way the gospel works, is if God is for God. Because He not only wanted to show that He is just but he wanted to show himself as the justifier, the one who could redeem people from their sin. The only way then, friend, that you are going to live a properly ordered life is for you to put his priorities above all else. Now, I want you to understand something. Not a lot of people will tell you this, but I will, because I love you. God wants you to live a properly ordered life. Some of you refuse to believe that. You Don't want to admit it, but you glory in your dysfunction. Your narcissism is a type of narcissism by which you think you can't get attention from anyone unless you've got problems, unless you've got disorder, unless you're not healing from the problems that you've had in your life, unless you've got a chip in your shoulder. That is what you use to blackmail people into paying attention to you. I've seen it in marriage. I've seen wives do it. I've seen husbands do it. You are such an emotional basket case that you won't get out of bed without someone giving you attention. It's called blackmail. By the way, it's sinful. The gospel has a way by which you can go from absolute dysfunctional mess to properly ordered affections in life. And here's the key. Do you want to know how it happens? Do you want to know the main source of your dysfunction? And I know some of you, the room this full, I will tell you, there are thousands of dysfunctions in this room. And I get it. Some of you have 32 of them. All right? It's like the demon. We are legion for we are many. All right? And, and I don't understand most of them. And I'll admit to you that I don't understand some of them. All right? But that's not the, pro- the point. Do you want to foundationally understand where every single one of them come from? Every single one of those dysfunctions has come from a foundation of you putting your priorities above God's priorities. Do you want to know why you can't end the dysfunction? Because you won't put God's priorities above your own. Do you want to know why you can't find joy? Because you won't put God's priorities above your own. Do you want to know why your life just frankly isn't right? 
It's because you are putting your priorities above God's. And we do that to the detriment of our souls. I'm not belittling it because hell hangs in the balance here. You are so desperate for attention that you crave chaos. You won't admit it, but you do. So you never get over anything. You never get through anything because it's how you get attention. Well, here's the deal. You're living for your own glory and you can't do that and follow Jesus Christ at the same time. Jesus wants to give you his life and his life is not dysfunctional. So what do you do? God's message here was for Joshua to take God's priorities and put them above Joshua's priorities. God wasn't for Israel. God was for God. Therefore, if I have any priority in my life that does not align with God's priority, then I must sacrifice that at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and get my life on track by walking away from it. Some of you desperately need to sacrifice so many of your priorities at the foot of the cross because they are not God's priorities. What is standing between you and God's glory? Kill it! Because number three, God's primary commitment is to His holiness. His primary commitment is to His holiness. You cannot know God apart from His holiness. God will not allow His holiness to be corrupted First, note the commander's reaction to worship. He accepts it. It's the only proper reaction in the presence of God is to fall on your face and worship because you're being confronted by the presence of God and so many of you have not. And I see it because you're not undone by your sin. You're not overwhelmed by the glory of God to the point where your sin is a disgusting, diseased reality. It's gangrenous. And Isaiah... Chapter 6, the prophet is confronted with the presence of God and the immediate effect is amazing. Prophet writes and he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Again, an extraordinary uh, moment even in light of Scripture. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And note the level of volume here. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now pause there. Many of you don't know this. But there is no other attribute of God that has triple magnification in Scripture. But many of us live as though holiness takes a back seat to the grace of God. Now, I love the grace of God, but Scripture never anywhere says, Gracious, gracious, gracious is the Lord. Because we want it to. Why? Because we want it to be. Because grace is about me. Grace makes much of me. I get all of the benefit. Well, friends, without the holiness of God, grace is worthless. It's moot. Scripture says holy, holy, holy. He's totally set apart. Look at Isaiah's reaction in verse 5. 
And I said, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Joshua falls on his face in worship when he's confronted with the presence of God. Isaiah doesn't know what to do with himself. Woe means I'm condemned. He's not placing a sentence on himself. He's describing the reality of what it feels like to be confronted with the absolute raw holiness of God. And so my question is, how do you react to the holiness of God? My fear is you just give it a thumbs up. That's great. He's holy. Totally set apart. Good stuff. Have you realized the holiness of God? Have you been confronted? Have you ever despaired of your life because of how sinful you are in light of how unsinful, how completely holy, how completely set apart? Have you ever wept over the sheer audacity that such a God would love you? Have you ever been undone in worship just in a moment because you realize this holy God whom I have rebelled against still loves me to the extent where he kills his own eternal son to pay the penalty for my sin? Or do you look in the mirror and say, I'm glad he's holy, but I'm still great? Joshua 3.15 presents a fascinating statement. I don't know, I've said a lot of words. I've got to hurry up. It's the same thing that Moses is told at the burning bush. God says, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. And it's fascinating to me. His cleaning feet in antiquity was a big deal. And here's why. There were sandals. I don't know if you know this or not, but sandals aren't like boots. All right? They're open-toed. Your foot is uncovered. In antiquity, they didn't have paved paths. They had dirt streets. And if it wasn't just dirt, it was mud. All right? And so your feet would get gross. You ever been in the backyard and you'd even done the pooper scooper, but Fido left you a gift you didn't find and you stepped in it and you're like, oh, well, imagine the piles three times the size and that's all over the streets in antiquity because they didn't have Chevys, all right? They had animals everywhere. And so you're walking through it and you're going to be stepping in the muck every single day of your life. And Joshua's before the presence of a holy God and he says, take off your sandals. And my question is, who cleaned the feet of Joshua? Because even though the sandals would have been disgusting, so would his feet have been. And there was nobody there because only servants cleaned feet. That's why Jesus cleaning the feet of the disciples was such a big deal. But nobody was there to clean Moses' feet. Nobody was there to clean Joshua's feet. Who cleaned them? Isaiah 6.6 says that the answer to Isaiah's problem in the presence of God was an angel flew over with a burning coal and purged the sin from his lips and a word picture. I'll tell you who cleaned Joshua's feet. God. This is an amazing picture of redemption. Jesus Christ even in the future, paid the penalty for Joshua's sin so that he could tread on holy ground. This is a statement of redemption in light of holiness. In Ephesians 1, starting in verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless. Are you holy? No. 
You're the opposite. Are you blameless? I know I'm not. I get blamed for a lot. And I deserve some of it. (laughs) So that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? And I love this. Because I'm so valuable. Because I'm so great. Because I'm so worthy. No, because He gets the glory. Because He is holy. Therefore, He can pronounce me as holy. And He is so just that He found before the foundations of the world the most amazing way to bring Himself the utmost glory that He would send the commander of the army of the Lord with not a sword, but with nails piercing His arms and His feet and he would give his life so that he could also be the justifier for my sin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. A few application points this morning. Obey God even when you don't understand it. Because a lot of times you won't. A lot of times it seems like sin will give you great advantage in this world. It never will. That is a lie from the pits of hell. Second, determine to be set apart for God's purposes. And it will take, in our culture, an incredible amount of determination. Because there will always be pressure from the wicked for you to bend the knee to unholiness. Refuse to do it. People will look at you and they will tell you, you're not going to make it in this world like that. I always respond, well, that's, that's fine because I'm trying to make it in the next one, the kingdom of heaven. And I'm winning there. Thirdly, put God's priorities above everything. 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 Nothing in this world is worth rebelling against God. Nothing. And it takes faith to trust that. Finally, Worship God by seeking His holiness. I love singing praises to the Lord. I love praise music. But you know what ultimate worship is? Ultimate worship is waking up every day and determining, I will be set apart for His purposes. Because He is worthy.